This is Local Color, a Baltimore podcast, a show dedicated to Baltimore's black artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, local legend, image maker, muralist, and self-described old cat, Ernest Shaw. If a statue of anyone should be erected in Baltimore, it should be of him. His constant pouring into the community and the future generations through teaching and art are how legacies are built, and we'd be remiss as a city if we didn't honor those contributions. Back before I started this podcast, before I was a traffic anchor, even before I was a radio journalist down in D.C., I worked in radio, but I drove a car. I drove a car wrapped with iHeartRadio decals, and the biggest decal was for the country station, WPOC. My job was to look for accidents and construction zones that would change the lanes of traffic or shut traffic down altogether. I'd call it in, then my coworkers at the iHeart building in Rockville would pass that info along to the traffic anchors who would read those traffic updates on air during the next traffic hit. On those drives, I'd listen to local public radio stations in Baltimore and D.C., and I would explore Baltimore City. From northwest all the way down to southeast, over the Hanover Street Bridge to Curtis Bay and back again, I could find art and murals all over the city. I couldn't always slow down and check the signature on each mural, but eventually I started to know which murals belonged to whom. Megan Lewis has the mural off Monroe Street by the Urban Ag Hoop Houses. Tom Miller has the mural off North Ave and Harford Road, but everybody knows that. I could never figure out who painted one mural off Cold Spring in York, closer to Morgan State. It had the Egyptian Nemes, the striped headdress of a pharaoh, but instead of a face inside the Nemes, there was something else painted there that I can't really remember. I drove by there recently and the mural's been painted over, so I guess I'll never know who painted it and what it represented. Today, now that I live in Reservoir Hill or Whitelock, when I need to get to 95, I'll either go down Druid Hill Avenue or go to Monroe Street. When I pass by Pennsylvania Avenue, I always look at the mural on the side of the Art Social Club, the mural by Ernest Shaw. It features two Baltimore icons, singer Billie Holiday and writer Ta-Nehisi Coates. That's one of several murals Shaw has painted over the years, and when he isn't painting pieces that contribute to Baltimore's rich art history, he's making images on canvas that'll still contribute to Baltimore's history. I caught up with Ernest the day after a showcase of his latest images. Where I want to start with you first is... Uh continuous line uh congratulations on the exhibition i was there last night at the top of the world the world trade center um it seemed like there was a pretty good turnout i showed up a little bit later but how are you feeling coming off of that exhibition thank you thanks for coming thank you for the support uh i feel good uh, it takes a couple of days to decompress because that's a lot of intense energy you know navigating and opening for for the artist but you know uh, I enjoy it. The only thing I don't enjoy about it is that you can't really give any one conversation proper um, attention because everyone's pulling at you. So you you like you have a half of a conversation here and a half of a conversation there, and you have all intentions of um, connecting with folks in the near future. Uh, but sometimes stuff just gets lost. You forgot to hand out your business card or you forgot to get somebody's number or someone was interested in the piece and because you couldn't really give them the attention then maybe their interest wanes a little bit you know just all part of the, the thing but it's a blessing you know what I mean I'm, I'm um I felt really good last night I feel really good now 
and you've had a, a career, you know, that has spanned like such a such a great length of time. But I wonder, even with this most recent exhibition, and I'm sure that there are people who would agree with me that you're definitely a master of your craft. Do you still kind of get like the pregame jitters? And do, do you ever get that feeling in your stomach like like you did with your first exhibition? Uh, yes. Short answer, yes. <laughs> uh, because I'm though I may appear to be a social butterfly at times, I'm really what you call a social introvert. I like people. I like being around people, but most of my work is done in solitude. Most of my work is done in the studio alone. Uh, and so that's where I feel most comfortable. Um, usually when I'm at home or in the studio. And again, it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy people or being sociable. It's just that when there's a demand for that, uh, that can become a little overwhelming. So I wouldn't say pregame chitters or butterflies. There's a, there's a level, level of anxiety, again, because you are sharing the deepest or the, the richest part of yourself with the public. And that can, you know, that can be a little scary, you know, extremely vulnerable situation to be in uh, as an artist. You want to share it, uh, but, you know, um, it can be a little, uh, it can cause a little anxiety. Yeah. Let's talk about you. We'll, we'll get back on like with the questions now. Um, where are you from, sir? So I'm from Baltimore, West Baltimore to be specific. First seven years of my life was... Uh, uh, spent on Division Street. There used to be a, an apartment building, 1411 Division Street, in the Upton um, part of town. That's in West Baltimore. And then when I was seven years old, almost eight, but seven, we moved up and up to uh, Edmondson Village, which was further west in Baltimore. And I grew up on a street called Lenhurst Street, actually 700 block, which was um, one block away from where Elijah Cummins grew up which was the 600 block. And in, on Division Street, that's like a block away from where um, Thurgood Marshall lived, you know? So um, two historic neighborhoods or parts of town, um, all still West Baltimore. What was it like growing up in Baltimore in, in, in the 70s and the 80s? What was it like? What was like black culture like? What was Baltimore culture like? Uh, and how does it compare to today? Interesting question. Um, so early part of my life was, yeah, literally right around the corner from Pennsylvania Avenue. And though it was not at its height in the 70s, it was still a real bubbly, bustling part of town, you know, still very active. Um, not in the way it's active today. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, very urban, still very communal in the 70s. Uh, but crack hit in the 80s, and it changed. It was a game changer. I guess sort of like heroin hit in the late 60s, early 70s for a lot of people, uh, for the generation above me. But but crack hit in the 80s, and it, it, when I tell you, it devastated the Black community. People you grew up with, family members, you know, they literally became the walking dead. So when I see these TV shows like Walking Dead, I see these movies like World War Z or, you know, all these, this is zombie apocalyptic type thing. 
all you had to do was grow up in the, in the inner city in the 80s. And you lived that, literally. People were, would walk the streets at any hour of the day and or night looking for vows in the grass and gutters looking for maybe trying to find some crack literally i know that sounds crazy hoping a drug dealer or or, or someone dropped a vow of crack you know but i also don't want to paint a totally negative picture of the 80s 80s also somewhat argue is the golden age of hip-hop a lot of people think it's the mid 90s i will argue against that 80s was my that was my high school years for the most part early college, high school and early college. Those were very formative relative to me becoming a young adult. Um, and yeah, I think hip, hip hop had a really large part on me developing some semblance of, of consciousness beyond having to watch Eyes on the Prize every year in February, mm -hmm. which I was grateful for, don't get me wrong. So, you know, you know, the Black Power Movement and the Black Arts Movement was not in the 80s, but you began to see the byproduct of the Black Power Movement and the Black Arts Movement in the art and the music in the 80s and early 90s, you know? And I'm not a hip-hop head like a lot of people in my generation. I'm more into jazz music, okay. you know? Having gone to Baltimore School for the Arts as a visual arts major, but having friends who were jazz musicians, that strongly, and you know, so jazz music strongly influences my work and my practice. I'm much, much more into jazz than I am hip hop. When you talk about your love and affinity for music, like with, with hip hop and jazz as well, do you feel like the improvisation of jazz, like the freeform spirit of jazz, is what you connect most with in terms of artistry and self expression? Oh, man, an excellent question, brother. Absolutely. Uh, and, and a lot of people misunderstand improvisation. You know, they, based on some maybe academic approaches or perspectives on jazz, like, like improvisation is making things up as it goes as you go along. And that is not what improvisation is. Improvisation, as I come to understand, or let's say as I use it in my work, you have an object, but then you choose to abstract that object. You know, and I, maybe that's why I'm so attracted to jazz music. Um, they can play any song, but never play the same song or never play the song the same way. Same thing with painting for me or image making. Uh, I take the figure or the form. You you still can see that, that you know, it's not, again, it's not non-objective. Um, it's not totally abstract, but leaning on the traditions really of, of African or what could be considered traditional African art in the ways that jazz music leans on um, some of the traditions of, of some traditional African music. And there, there's some things there that I like to, uh, to explore. I'll just say it that way. You briefly touched on your time going to uh, Baltimore School for the Arts, um, but I also want to talk about your time at uh, at college, you know, you're a graduate of Morgan State University, and then you did your uh, MFA at Howard University. Do you think that HBCUs are more or less involved in the Black community compared to when you were a student? Because because this is actually something that I think about a lot. So I went to a primarily white institution, and 
looking back when I was in middle school uh, and high school, I've never seen like any like fraternity or sorority come to our school or really be involved in the community and and like tell younger black kids, hey, there is uh there's like a there's a whole you know brotherhood or sisterhood out there for you when you get to these higher education institutions. Um so that that's my question for you is is how is HBCU culture when you were in those HBCUs compared to what it is now? Because again, you mentioned a different world. A different world is responsible for a lot of black kids like going to Howard, going to Morgan or other HBCUs. But I want your, I want your take on it. Again, another good question. So, and let me, and let me be clear. I first went to, I attended six different institutions. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I first went to University of Maryland College Park. So I attended a PWI and I pledged a fraternity at a PWI. Wasn't until they kicked me out of there that <laughs> I ended up, you know, I went to Coppin for a little bit, which is HBCU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a couple of different community community colleges, you know, just trying to maintain some some credits. Ended up at Morgan, went to went on to graduate from Morgan. And then as you said, Howard. So let me provide a little bit of context. Depending on your perspective of HBCUs, right? Mm-hmm. Mine is one that I developed some of the some relationships with professors that changed my were life changing, um, and and to this day I I still admire greatly um, the professors at HBCU changed my life. Angela Franklin changed my life, gave helped give my art purpose, um, and she was really hard on me uh, toward African American art history. First time I had ever taken it. Now, I went to Baltimore School for the Arts. We took art history for a year-long course for four straight years. We took art history. Never did we take African-American art history or African art, right? So what were we learning for four years? And again, I don't begrudge. I mean, I mean, my art history teacher is a wonderful human being. I don't begrudge anything they had done. I, I cherish my time at the School for the Arts. My daughter went to the School for the Arts. You know, I you know, and she graduated from there as well, you know, but again, it was academia, but let me stay on, let me stay on topic. Anyway, Angela Franklin taught African-American art history, right? Which I, I've taught, but the way she taught it inspired me to go back and take every art history class I had ever taken over. I already had credit for them, but I went back and took them over. I knew I could draw and paint. Everybody knew I could draw and paint, but that's when my work began to have purpose. And I really thank Morgan State and Howard for helping me develop the tools needed to navigate this thing we call society uh, in ways that would not have happened at a different type of institution. So I have nothing but love for historical Black colleges and universities. Um, Having said that, are they as active in the community? You know, it's a difficult question because I don't know really if they were ever super active in the community mm-hmm. because part of the history and culture of HBCUs is about educating Negroes. And yeah. what do Negroes do when they get a little education? And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I'm just, I'm using old terminology. Yeah, sure. You know, there is a class or cast of Black people created from HBCUs because it was a long time in this country. We couldn't go to PWIs. Mm-hmm. 
and that that layer of um, a caste or class of African Americans was intentionally created as a buffer between dominant society and um, uneducated black people and black laborers. So, you know, an HBCU served that purpose. Carter G. Wilson talks about it in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro, written in 1933, I believe. So he was talking about that in 1933. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you talked about this from when I attended those schools till today, you know, and I'm an educator and I an adjunct, and I've adjunct at an HBCU. Um, I would say it's less involved in the community because there really isn't much of a community left. Mm. You know, I, I believe it was Bob and Dick Gregory that said there's no black community. In order to have community, you need to, you know, it's not simply about geographic location, but let's say community and neighborhood are similar. Do you control um, the resources? In your community, are you in control of them? Do you own the stores? You know, um, are you in control of the gas and electric? Are you in control of the water? Are you in control of the education system that educates your children in that so-called community? You know what I mean. So you don't control you don't control the businesses, you don't control the resources, you don't control the economics of your of, of your community, you don't control the education, and you don't police yourself. Not, let me not use the word police. You don't, um, you know what I mean. Let me be clear. I don't want to give the impression I'm speaking negatively about Black people, mm-hmm. even though some, it, can, it can easily be perceived as that. This is an observation. Observation, not a judgment. An observation as an educator that's taught for 20 years. Yeah. And I, you know what I mean? And you can assess what the future looks like in the performance of students with a tad bit of accuracy. I can tell you what it's going to be like 10 years from now because I know what it was like 10 years ago and 10 years prior to that relative to how students performed in school. Uh, And that's real. Okay, yeah. I I appreciate you giving uh, the disclaimer, but like between you and me, I understand like the difference between like an observation and a criticism. But I think it's important that you mention that because I do feel like an issue that we have sometimes is that we refuse or we respond very negatively to observations uh, that might, I don't want to say cast us in a negative light, but it's like, like, just look at the facts, just look at the numbers here. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that you brought up a very interesting point that I hadn't considered. Like you say HBCUs aren't in the community as much because like, well, where, where really is the black community one? And then two, uh, the primary function of the HBCUs were to cultivate that, uh, that talented 10th class of black people who would go forth and, you know, work white collar jobs or, or do whatever it is uh, they could do to, um, to, to push black people forward. Uh, and I, I don't remember if it was um, uh, uh, George Washington Carver or uh, W.E.B. Du Bois who, who had come up with the, the idea of the talented test. But any, anyway, the point boys. is, it was okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. But the point is, is like, I, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. And as you say, you know, you got the credentials to, to make those statements. So I, I would be very hard pressed to find anybody who would say, well, well, he's wrong. It's like, well, well, look at his resume. Look at the numbers. He, he, he might know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they train us to look at the data. 
you know, and, yeah, and sometimes data is they're like Bible verses. You can find one to support your argument, <laughs> you know. But we live in we live in a time of fantasy sports and you know analytics and things of that nature. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm critical of HBCUs as much as I love HBCUs because they nurtured me and um, and I, I think they're still necessary. Unfortunately, they're still necessary. But the further removed we get from desegregation, and I do not use the word integration, I use the word desegregation, the further re we remove we get from when that happened in, in time and space, mm -hmm. the less significant HBCUs are. Mm -hmm. You know, um, more of them are struggling. You know, just, just, and I hate always making sports analogies, but there was a time when I watched football, Walter Payton, Shannon Sharp, Jerry Rice, Terrell Owens, they all went to HBCUs. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to go back to the, maybe Willie Lanier. You don't have to go back to, I don't know if Willie Lanier went to HBCU. I, I, I suspect he did. But you don't have to go back to the generation before Alice. In my generation, the, the many of the best, and that's just football, football players, come from HBCUs. You can't really say that now. You know, mm. so if it's that way in athletics, how is it in uh, engineering? Yeah, how is it for the rest of us? How is it for the rest of us? And, you know, Morgan has an outstanding engineering program. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers, you, you know, your question on HBCUs. Oh, it, it definitely does. It was a very, very comprehensive answer. I appreciate it. Um, and I want to move now to uh, your art um, and just a brief summary. You know, you grew up in West Baltimore. Uh, you went to the city public schools, then you went to Baltimore School uh, of the Arts, uh, went to a few other colleges, but you ended up finishing at Morgan State University, and then you got your MFA at Howard University. Uh, but I do want to talk about um, your art of today. Uh, mm -hmm. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you had your exhibition Continuous Line last night. Uh, at um, at the World Trade Center downtown. Can you talk about the difference in theme and messaging for Continuous Line compared to uh, Testify and other exhibitions? Because when I was there, I saw obviously the pieces, which were amazing, but I felt like I could, I could see um, like a recurring theme or recurring thematic material that is used in the art, specifically the masks that the subjects either wear or that are, are placed on the subjects to mask something else or to cover up something else. So can you just make that uh, comparison or talk about the theme and messaging? Absolutely. So Testify was 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the last time I had done an exhibition. Uh, and that's, you know, that's prior to the pandemic. Uh, and there were several pieces in Testify that had masks in them. The difference was the majority of those pieces, the mask is either directly behind or in front of the face, right? And it covers. Mm -hmm. And in continuous line, the mask is drawn, but it's like a, a contour slash continuous line drawing. You can see the line drawing of the mask, but you can also see what's beyond that. So it, it doesn't fully cover mask or hides the face. I moved from just having an African motif or a piece of sculpture or in, in, in a piece to sort of compositionally combining the mask or the sculpture 
with the the dominant image or face or portrait. And here's why. There is a myth. I call it a myth. I mean, it's, it's really a lie. But some people believe it. That's why, you know, that when the Africans they, you know, came to these shores as prisoners of war, they didn't come as slaves. You know, you ask any, any go in any classroom in Baltimore City and ask where do slaves come from? What will the students say? They're conditioned and indoctrinated to say Africa. So you think slaves come from Africa as if slave is an ethnic group or a nation or tribe of people in Africa or all the Africans are slaves. So yeah. they were prisoners of war. There was a war waged on the continent of Africa and many of the different African peoples. Some of the African peoples participated in that war, right? Um, a small percentage, but you know, some a lot of people like to bring that up. The belief is we were stripped of our names, culture, language, um, totally. And we became something else, i.e. we became slaves or whatever. And that's just, there's too much evidence to suggest that that's not true. So, you know, but many of us are unaware of aspects of our culture that make us African, as African as any other people. If you travel to the Caribbean, you see right in front of your face many aspects of, I would call, um, Africana ways of knowing and being. You go to certain parts of Central and South America, you see it, it's right there. It's a little less noticeable here because for the most part, the overwhelming majority of the colonies and overwhelming majority of, of the states, once the colonies became states, were um, Protestant, mm -hmm. right? I think Maryland's the only Catholic slaveholding territory, right? Mm -hmm. well, the Catholic colony initially is Maryland. And I was raised Catholic. Uh, but so having that Protestant focus or Protestant way of knowing and being and being enslaved under that um, took away the drum. And I believe it was 1690, 1691, uh, outlawed certain forms of dancing where those things didn't happen in the Caribbean and Central South America, where you had mostly Catholic um, slaveholding territories because mm -hmm. the way Catholicism is practiced with the idolatry, the, the almost the, the, the worshiping of the Holy Mary, Holy Mother, Holy Feminine. Right. And they said it was parallel to many traditional African belief systems. And some would say Catholicism is really like, really mimics a traditional um, comedic spiritual system, mm. um, which is African. Right. Right. So without going too deep into that, relative to the work in this show, continuous line, I have a lot of continuous line drawings where you, when you place the paintbrush or the pen or the pencil on the, on the surface, you don't pick it up until you, you're done. You know, that's taking this toll on my shoulder, but that's a conversation <laughs> another time. So continuous line is a metaphor for ways indigenous West African people, um, ways in which they see the world and define the world uh, still exists in us. And there's so much, there's so much evidence to suggest that the way we speak, uh, the way we name our children, um, 
the way we traditionally treat our elders, um, how we worship, um, what the community used to be, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's very African, very West African culturally. So uh, we are as African as our brothers and sisters on the continent who've been colonized. Um, but you have to provide people with evidence and allow them to choose because we, we're just not aware. Right. So, so I put aspects of mass and I might overlay the mask or the face and there's some juxtaposition, there's some play going back and forth. Um, because from time to time, we, we exhibit those behaviors, right? And I'll give you one, one that was heart-wrenching for me. Heart-wrenching. When George Floyd was breathing his last breaths and dying and knew he was going to die, who did he call out to? His mother. His mother, who had preceded him in death. His mother. What made him say, Ma? Right? Without going too deep into that, that was a very African thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as he began to lose consciousness. So that's just one very small example. The, the way many of our young people's names end in the vowel sound. Mine doesn't. My name is Ernest Edward Julius Shaw Jr. But many of, and, and I'm going to come from this perspective, ones we may historically um, judge negatively. The poorest of us, and by poor, I'm talking financial, I'm not talking in character. Okay. Those of us who are less educated academically, name our children um, with a vowel sound at the end. And we joke about that. The Shanaynays, the Bonquishas, the Shakrishas. You know what I mean? We joke about that, but that's an African way of naming. You know, the, you know not using certain cluster consonants when we speak. Many people don't know that. And growing up, you asked me about the 70s and 80s. Growing up, if you, the, most of the ways that we speak in the hood, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, we speak with an African tongue. What, the way we speak is more African than it is English, than it is European, right? And I tell my students all the time, if you speak English, first of all, you're not English, you're not from England. Secondly, if you spoke <laughs> English, you wouldn't have to take the class in school. <laughs> and they laugh and they tell, oh, wow, I never thought about that. They bite. You know, um, and I try to get them to honor the way they talk you know, naturally in their neighborhoods because it's the closest to how the ancestors spoke when they got off those boats. Mm. They did not learn English in a classroom talking about the ancestors. And they damn sure didn't learn it from an English scholar or an English um, teacher. They most likely learned it from an uneducated, poor, white immigrant who were overseers on plantations. Right. That, so they picked, they weren't even speaking, they weren't even learning it or hearing it from people who spoke perfect English or what could be called academic English. They were grasping and picking up words under a lash. You know what I mean? Under adverse circumstances, extremely traumatizing circumstances. So they're picking up words here and there and combining it with or laying it over top of uh, many of the different languages that they spoke on the continent 
and the generation after generation, you know, they pass that language down, that oppressive language to their children and then to their children. And then you, you know, people migrate from the South to the North. A few of us get some education <laughs> or get some similar education. But for the most part, when we when we around our family, we feel relaxed. We kind of sort of sit, you know, we slip back into turning that TH into a V or an F. <laughs> or hyphen, you know, yeah. or, hyphen, or a D. And that's a very African way of speaking, but we don't think about it that way. You speaking of uh, language and how we play with and change language for you yourself, most people will call you an artist or a painter or a muralist. And we'll get into your murals in a moment. Um, But you say that your art isn't actually art until it evokes a feeling from the receiver or the viewer. So someone like me. So why do you prefer to call yourself an image maker over an artist or a painter? Talking about HBCUs, one of my professors who is no longer with us here, uh, Michael Platt, taught me that being an artist is something the community labels you. This is between Michael Platt and and a professor, Guy Jones, my painting professor at Morgan. Mm-hmm. The two, these are their two philosophies kind of merged together. You're an artist when your work has been received by an audience or a receiver. And then that audience in turn gives you feedback that completes the cycle of creating something or transmitting your thoughts, feelings, and emotions via some type of medium, whether it's in you know music, dance, writing, theater, visual art, you know, and you're communicating that to an audience. The work is a medium. That's why they call it medium or media. And then that audience has some type of transformative experience. They're impacted in some way. And then you read their response and that's feedback for you. And then the cycle starts over. That's when it becomes art. Other than that, you just created a painting or a composition or a script. A script isn't done become art until it's read to an audience. You know what I mean? So, you know, so, so it, it's that type of African type of thinking that the individual is only valuable in the context of community. So what I create is not art until it has been received by an audience and that audience deems it so. And and let me be clear again, I'm not merely referring to the term art because that's an academic term. And art is basically used to control the masses, right? What I'm talking about is things that people create that have an impact on an audience. You know what I mean? So I'm people call, a lot of people call themselves creatives. They don't call themselves artists. They call themselves creatives. Um, that's That was a buzzword that started about 10 years ago, I think, maybe about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make images and that I'm inspired to make, and then they become art when the audience deems it so, if that makes sense. So next I want to talk about, get a little bit back into academia and your time in the school, but this time instead of a student, as a teacher, can you connect the themes of art and creative expression to teaching, uh, specifically your time teaching the Baltimore City, uh, Baltimore City youth? Uh, yeah, man, absolutely. Um, I forget who said this quote, but it's so true, really. Where else could you find such splendid company? And that's in schools, if you are a teacher with students. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I am more a student than I am a teacher because I, it, 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 and that informs my practice because you all, you, you have to allow the young people to not just keep you up to date on what's hip, you know, <laughs> and what's popular, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. or what's fashionable. Cause we always have those fashion conversations in my class, but they also keep you alive. My students remind me that one, I am a member of, this is going to sound a little contradictory to something I said earlier, but I'm a member of a community. Uh, I have a purpose. My work has meaning. Those things keep the juices slow. Those things keep you alive. Those things keep you motivated, keep you inspired to get up, to get out of bed in the morning, to meditate, to exercise. You know, so um, the older I get, the more of a student I become of the young people. When you when you teach from that perspective, you put your students at the center of your practice. They also have a stake in, in their education. Right. Not their schooling, but their education, because there's a difference between schooling and education. It took me six or seven years as a teacher to understand that it, it, it's, it's a career. There's an art to it. It's not simply a gig or a job that you do to, to buy our supplies. No, it's the, literally the product of your labor. It's not an inanimate object. It's a human being. And that is a, a heck of a responsibility. 10 years from now, these are going to be people on the job or some, they're going to be doing something. So you might as well partake in attempting to help shape them because it's going to have a direct impact on you. And that doesn't mean you have to be in the classroom. There are a lot of other things, a lot of ways you can, you can engage young people in a system and, and developing the skills they need um, to be successful. You can't teach the same lessons every semester, every year. You can teach similar lessons, but it has to change because the, the, the students change. Teaching has that parallel to creative expression and, and, and being an image maker, as you say, you have to grow with your craft or else you're not going to be an effective, um, you're just not going to be an effective teacher. You know, mm-hmm. and then in the same way, when you're making art, if you if you're not if you're not growing with your craft and trying to push yourself and, and expand your boundaries, then you're not going to be an effective artist or image maker either. And let's be clear. I talk about where else could you find such splendid company? The students are the closest you're going to get to the, what it means to be authentic and sincere. My students are more sincere and authentic than my colleagues. And that's not a diss on my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, being in a professional setting requires that you you wear the mask that Paul Lawrence Dunbar talks about, especially if you're black. Yeah. You know, and so often we have to wear the mask. Um, and students, when in the classroom, um, can help create an environment of authenticity and sincerity, you know, compassion and empathy, things, things needed to maintain one's humanity. You know, and I teach in Baltimore City Public Schools. There are folks who will argue it's the toughest or one of the toughest school districts in the country, right? I've never feared for my life or my job. Now, of course, I, I am a man. I'm speaking as a man who taught, of the 20 years I taught, 18 of them was in West Baltimore, where mm-hmm. I'm from. So let, let, I'm full transparency. I know a lot of the students' parents grandparents or if if I don't know them I know somebody that knows you know what I'm saying I want to talk again about your art but this time I want to talk about your murals you Mm -hmm. I I I don't think anybody can debate me here when 
I say that you are a, a living and local legend in Baltimore City. You know, you have so many murals that are found around Baltimore City and some even in other states uh, uh, up and down the East Coast. Uh, one of the murals I want to talk about, though, uh, is in um, Colombia in, in South America. I want, to, I want you to talk about your trip and then any connection that you may have felt with the Afro-Latino population. I'm going to tell you what's interesting about the trip, man. I was brought there as a black man in America to talk to mostly students that were either black, could be defined as black, indigenous, a mixture of such, you know? I was literally, they brought me there as a representative of black people in the United States, you know what I mean? And an artist to paint. Beautiful and wonderful experience, though, because you know, uh, you know, all of Colombia is not the same. Bogota and Medellin and, and Cali are all three very different cities. You know, that's like Atlanta, LA, and New York. So I was in Cali, Santiago de Cali, and I might as well have been in both in a Spanish-speaking Baltimore. It was so similar, like culturally, the vibe was so similar. I just didn't speak Spanish. I feel comfortable in urban environments. When I traveled to Puerto Rico. I felt very comfortable in San Juan. Now, mind you, that's technically still the United States, but Puerto Rico is its own place. You know what oh, I'm saying? Yeah, I've been to Puerto Rico a few times. Look, like you could you can't tell me that the culture is anywhere near close to like American culture on on like the mainland, as they call it, a completely different world. Maybe the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's, that's different, but that's a totally, you know, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> that's different that's different that's different and i met some of the most beautiful people um on different political um sides because you know colombia is one of those countries that at any given moment a revolution could jump off yeah you know um it's just nice to travel and meet real people you know uh and i I spoke to a few different groups, some children. I went, I went to like a recreation center uh, for the arts. I watched them do some choreography, take some dance classes. I watched uh, an art, I, I did an art lecture. I watched folks play instruments. I mean, children, that just warmed my heart. It just fed my soul and my spirit, you know? And those people in Cali, I mean, they, they have a vibe and a rhythm that they, that they walk with. Uh, again, my favorite type of jazz, or one of my favorites, is Latin jazz. Why? Because the percussive nature of that comes directly from indigenous and enslaved cultures that mm -hmm. were there, that were not stripped of certain instrumentation. We were, because this was Protestant here, we were stripped of certain ins instrumentation, and it has had an impact on our art. Mm -hmm. You go there, the, you have many percussion, you have many band leaders who are percussionists. You have a lot less band leaders here who are percussionists. And that's all about the African drum, African and indigenous drum. Uh, where the, the drum in and of itself here, you, you look at a band, where's the drum? The drum is in the back. You know, that's not by mistake. Uh, they don't feature the drummer. They more, they more often do not feature stringed instruments. And that's also African, but again, that's another that's a different, um, <laughs> that's a totally different um rabbit hole. So when I'm there, I feel that. I felt that Africanist, that Africanist. I felt it there. 
um, they took me to a market that was very similar to Lexington market. And we just walking through the market. And again, Baltimore and Maryland were Catholic. You know, Maryland was a Catholic county. Yeah. So I could go to a store and get a, a, a rosary. There are places we can just go and get rosaries. You can't do that in any, just in any state. Uh, so when I'm there, I go and we go into the market. You may be selling, someone may be vending and selling rosaries on this side and then selling different aspects of Ifa. you know, like things that may go to, you know, things you need for your shrine. Mm-hmm. If you practice the the indigenous African, not indigenous African, but some traditional African spirituality, or or some uh, uh, indigenous spirituality, you know, all of it in the marketplace, I, and you know that that blew me, uh, because you see it in the art there too, M- murals all over the place, mm-hmm. graffiti, graffiti and murals, you know, street art. Let me say it that way. And can can you talk about your mural? Um... Mm-hmm. What, what's the name of the mural? Is it Yamaha? It depends on how I spelled it. Um, is it spelled Y-E-M-O-J-A? Y-E-M-A-J-A. At, at least that's what I saw when I looked it up. And it's different depending on where you are in South America. Okay. And where you are in the Caribbean, it's spelled different. Yamaya. Yamaya, okay. And uh, does that have does that word have any specific significance? It's a deity, one of the the... the major deities in the Ifa tradition, which comes out of what is now modern, or like, the, I don't want to say Dahomey, it's modern day Nigeria. I dedicated the mural to that deity. So I designed a mural to pay homage to many of the black women in the resistance movement there. A lot of times when I dedicate stuff, I, I don't use specific names because there's always more than one person. There's always people who supported that. Like, if let's say for us, it's Martin Luther the King. You know what I mean? Martin Luther King, everything. And we in Black History Month. But <laughs> yeah. very seldom are the people who fed him. And when I say fed him, I'm right. talking spiritually. Like Mahalia Jackson fed him spiritually. Like, we don't talk about those people. So I just try to create work to honor all of them, to honor the movement. Uh, but there were some specific women who I learned about whose names escaped me right now. I have to go back through my notes that I wanted to paint something to that. I wanted to, to assist in creating something that paid homage to them. So there's some African um, aspects of African spirituality in there. And I usually, unbeknownst to many, will slip in some type of African art on the left side of a mural and it might be a silhouette. I don't always put it in people's faces, but because they have people who practice out in the open like that there, uh, I first on the, on the left, there is some sculpture from the mm-hmm. continent. Um, and then there's a, a um, figure of a young girl that I also used in Atlanta. Uh, and yeah. behind that, you'll see the, um, the not the El Rey, the, what do they call that? Because they had one in Brazil. So over the city, they have one, a crucifix. A oh, crucifix. Uh, uh, Christ, Christ the uh, Redeemer, like the big Jesus statue. Yeah. yeah. They have that. The same way they have it in Rio, I believe, they have one there in Cali. Oh, okay. It's on top of a mountain because, you know, it's a mountainous region that, that's on the top of it. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I had the young lady flexing with her back to you and it's superimposed, it's juxtaposed over the statue of Christ. Mm. You know, just a little symbolism, man. Art as like as a medium, as an industry, just as a lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, however you want to define it, it, it's just notoriously difficult to excel in as a career path, any type of creative endeavor, any type of um, work that can be considered subjective. Uh, but for somebody like you, like I said, you're a local legend, you've done murals you know, up and down the East Coast, all around uh, the the Western Hemisphere, and you've had such a long and storied career. And with that respect that you've earned from it, what responsibility comes with being like such a veteran artist and and teacher and and mentor? Or is that the responsibility that as you gain these skills and this knowledge and that clarity and that knowledge of self, uh, when we get back to the earlier conversations? is it the duty of an image maker or an artist to pass that down to the next generation? Oh, come on, man, yeah. And again, you know, it ties between the, all your questions, man, like they, we come back to some of the similar themes in that as an artist and an educator, one thing I've learned is, is that human beings have to have an example of something in front of them. Unless you're extraordinary, and you know, you just always creating stuff that had never been created before. Much of what we do is we mimic. We learn from um, mimicking. Uh, what do I mean by that? There's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm -hmm. So, but you have to have examples in front of you to make things real, to help chart your course. I have had people in front of me mentors, even some tra traumatic, tragic experience. I say the, the passing of my son. There were instances where he was teaching me what true compassion and empathy is. And I'll, I'll share this quick story and then tell you how it's related to your question. Son passed away of cancer in, in 2008. Most people know that. Um, but it was brain cancer, brain and spinal cancer. So when the cancer came back, it came back in the, on the spine and in his brain. So he had these massive headaches that I can't even imagine toward the, um, you know, the beginning of his transition. And one night he just, I was sleeping in his room and he just woke up screaming and then I rushed to his bed and he says to me, dad, I'm sorry. Now here is an eight year old boy experiencing pain I've never experienced. Calling out my name in the first, his first thought is what I'm going through. Come on, man. That, yeah, one of the instances that let me know there is a God. And by God, I'm not talking about some white bearded man up in the sky. Mm. I'm talking about that entity or that spirit that connects all people, right? Mm -hmm. How does an eight-year-old have that wisdom to be worried about how I am being impacted as his father by his pain and anguish? And I'm not talking about he stubbed his toe. This is a tumor in your brain and it's about to kill you yeah pain that you can't you could no one could ever imagine can't imagine unless you go through it. and I, I don't wish that on anybody that was that that taught me right that was an exact you have to have examples in front of you to help make things real to you so as an artist one of the main responsibilities is to make the unknown known so yes continuous line is me attempting to make 
aspects of who we are and the deep recesses of who we are, some of which has been beaten out of us, but not all of it, or violently stripped from us, and continues to be violently stripped to us because we live in an anti-Black society, mm-hmm. anti-African society. So it didn't stop in 1865. It didn't start with the signing of the Civil Rights Bill. It didn't start with the signing of the Voting Rights Bill. It's not going to stop with the signing of a new Voting Rights Bill. You see, you see my point? But yeah. so you need artists around to bring into fruition that which is in the, in the, I'm about to sound a little kooky now, but that which is in the spirit realm that inspires people, puts people in the spirit. You, we, we bring it from there through the metaphysical into the physical, right? I see, I see. That's, and that's real, that, I mean, that's serious, that's heavy. And we can't take that lightly. So if there's anything that I do that folks, Say, oh man, Ernest, Ernest, he bad, man, Ernest. I didn't create or invent that. I saw someone else. I'm blessed to have been in the company of a guy Jones, Angela Franklin, uh, a Michael Platter, Sorrells, out of Wally, a James Phillips. You know, I cannot listen. The list is my uncle, Dr. Luke Shaw. The list is Lord Joyce Scott. You know, Tom Miller. You know what I mean? Like some of my teachers even younger than me, Manesha Hooter, Salima Jonku, Jamokia Jonku, but you know, Baba Bailey McKnight. To bring the, the, the question full circle, I had people in front of me that helped chart my path for me. And that's and I still do. Even at 52, I have mentors and godfathers. You know, my, my parents are still alive. They were at the exhibition last night. And I was just thinking, you know, you know, I went to the thing through that thing with my son, but I'm, and when I was 38, but I'm 52 and my parents are still coming to my exhibit. Very blessed. I'm a very blessed um, individual. And, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how much I learned from my daughter, who's 26 now. Mm-hmm. How much I learned about and how much of my patriarchy, sexism, how much of that needed to be unpacked. Even years ago, I don't like the, the word homophobia, but you know what I mean? If you live, yeah. you if you black, you're a male, you grew up in the hood, some of that is ingrained and instilled in you almost by osmosis just because of ways in which we need to walk through the world. But you got to undo that. You know, my daughter and a few other people helped me, really helped me get that together. So I'm grateful. So we're going to start wrapping up here. Um, this question I always ask my my, my guests, what's, what's coming up next for you? And is there anything that we haven't, talked about that you um that you want to mention i'm looking forward to retirement from teaching it's coming you know <laughs> um, it's coming but you can't stay in the trenches too long and i'm and i'm looking forward to um focusing on my practice and i'm not gonna say full-time because i've been working on my practice full-time i've just had two full-time jobs <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not like oh i'm, I'm a full-time teacher and i do my art on this nah, it's not we're not I just been burning the candle at both ends for so many years. It's time for me to um, shift gears. So uh, we'll see how that works out. I think I'll leave it there. All right. Well, I'm sure whatever you do, people are going to be uh, waiting and excited to see what you do next. And like I said before, uh, I'm I'm sure I'm going to need to talk to you again because there's just so much that we didn't even go over. Like part of me even feels like 
like I'm not going to say that this was a bad interview. I think it was fantastic, but I just feel like me as like a as like a journalist, I haven't done my duty until I've extracted as much as I can. But again, I know that that would take that would take so many hours. So what I will say is uh, Ernest Shaw, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, interview you. It was truly an honor. Brother, humble man that you even want to talk to old cat. That was image maker, muralist, and Baltimore icon, Ernest Shaw. If you want to learn more about Ernest and his art, head to eshawart.com, where you can read his bio and look at past works. Find him on IG at eshaw underscore art. Be sure to subscribe to Local Color on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Rate five stars and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason V, and I'll be back with more Local Color.